it messes up. Mm. Okay. Should be live. What what okay. is that? Oh, I, people can't see it because you're sort of oh. clipped, so I only see half of you. Is that Pluto and Sharon? This is my Pluto and Sharon plushies. Oh, that's great. They're a binary planet. They're a binary planet. They orbit and they, they're magnetic. Anyway, oh, they... I thought I would add this to my set design back here. Oh, that's incredible. <laughs> I haven't got I, I haven't got a full view of you set up right now, but so you so you if you keep keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. A little more, a little more, a little more. There we go. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. Now they can They're remain sort of older over my shoulder. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. They'll see you over your shoulder. So. Yeah. Hey everyone, uh, you blew my mind before we got started. What did you call this? Happy Monday. Happy Monday. <laughs> right. It's. I mean, it's still podcast day, but happy bonus. It's a different one that I'm used to. Yeah. Uh, for people who don't know, Kimberly, of course her intro on the weekly space hangout is to say happy podcast day and yet i guess it still is a podcast because i will, I will still, be releasing this as a podcast i i will still count this it's just an extra special podcast day for me yeah it's an extra special podcast week i get two days of podcast <laughs> lucky you i feel very lucky um well so for people who don't know i'm assuming like half the audience i hope knows who you are and for the other half who maybe don't know who are you so my name is kimberly cartier doctor i am kimberly dr kimberly cartier you know it's been a year and a half and i still forget to introduce myself that way dr kimberly cartier uh i am a reporter at an earth and space science magazine called eos which is the news branch of the american geophysical union and I've been there for the past year and a half since I earned my PhD in astronomy and astrophysics from the Pennsylvania State University. I'm also a regular weekly panelist on the Weekly Space Hangout. That's right. And last week we had Dr. Jason Wright on. And, yes. and Jason was your, how does this work? He was your mentor? So he was mentor? my PhD advisor. Right. So he wasn't technically in charge of me, though he gave me a lot of freedom to explore what I wanted to do. Because as you may have guessed from my introduction is I started in academia as a grad student, got my PhD in astronomy and astrophysics, and then immediately afterwards decided not to continue in academia. Right. Uh, and so about halfway through my grad program, I said, you know what, I will be completely miserable if I do this as a career for the rest of my life. What the heck do I want to do instead? Uh, Th that is, is that is an interesting kind of existential crisis to come to. After... I call it my quarter life crisis. Quarter -life so I, was about, crisis. I was about 25 when that happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm trying to think, right? You had done your bachelor's degree in mm -hmm. physics. In astronomy. In astronomy. Yep. You did your master's. So that's what, four years. You did your master's degree. That's another two. Two. Yeah. Yeah. So you were six years in. You're then mm -hmm. working on your PhD. That's another three years. Mm -hmm. So we're at we're at nine. So I was I was a year technically a year into my PhD program after I'd already gotten my master's, after I'd already gotten my bachelor's, uh, knowing from I think about junior year in high school that astronomy and physics was what I wanted to do. Uh, I loved doing it. I was great at it. Uh, I wanted to learn everything I could possibly think of having to do with space. Though I quickly decided that planets were my were my favorites of all the things uh and then i got more and more into the reality of what it would be like to be a researching scientist uh because it's not just about learning new things uh or writing papers or giving presentations or taking classes i was starting to get more and more away from those things and more into the daily research grind uh, which is a lot of detail work a lot of finicky coding and programming has never been one of my favorite things um they don't tell you quite how much computer programming is involved in an astronomy degree when you start out as, you know, a young and plucky 18-year-old mm -hmm. starting as a freshman in college. Um, and, you know, I there was never a point where I thought, you know, I couldn't do this as a career. Uh, I've always been, you know, well aware that, like, I, I could I could have, you know, stayed as a researcher. There was nothing keeping me back except for the fact that I knew that if I kept doing it, I would really start to not like science and i never wanted to reach that point so i started figuring i started you know i did some really deep 
soul searching for a summer trying to figure out like what the heck do I like what part of this experience have I enjoyed the most so right. far because I because I was still at the point where I loved science I loved space I loved exoplanets like anything you could tell me about it I would be fascinated um, but what part of it did I really enjoy the most and the part that I discovered uh, perhaps not so surprisingly for people who know me is that I really enjoyed learning about new things and then communicating <laughs> that new exactly science to others. That's exactly me too. Yeah, I know it's funny. My, you know, for people who don't know, I went to university for engineering and, oh. and got a year into that and had the exact same thing, which was like, like this was all fascinating as I learned it, but I don't mm -hmm. want to like sit down and recalculate uh, load stresses on bridge support structures for and my I didn't want to life. program Monte Carlo simulations yeah. of exoplanet atmospheres. I wanted to know, you know, what is in that atmosphere? Oh, it's water. It's methane. What can I learn from that? What can what can the yeah. entire scientific endeavor learn from that? And how can I make other people as excited about this as I am? Yeah. Uh, and so I, I tried just about every form of science communication that I could think of while also continuing to do exoplanet research for two and a half years. Uh, you know, I started almost immediately on space hangouts. I started as an exoplanet blogger for a news site. I did local radio appearances. I did local um, present like public astronomy appearances. I started writing press releases for free for my astronomy department. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I found that I love writing, you know, uh, and I combined it. Uh, first, hi, dad. My dad's just posted in the comments. So I think hi. one of the first times he's been able to watch live. So uh, everyone say hi to my dad. Uh, How crazy is dad? <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so, I mean, that that process of, of writing, right, of, mm -hmm. of, of taking a complicated subject and trying to kind of break it down and then translate it into a way that someone can can get the gist and understand why this work is important. Right. How how was that process for you? The process started out very slowly for me. Uh, I will say I I've known for a while that I enjoy writing. I've always just sort of done it, you know, personal writing or uh, like short fiction stories that I never really shared with anybody. But I, I like writing. I like words. I like, you know, the minutiae. No, I'm serious. Like, I get yeah. really excited yeah, when I learn a new vocabulary word person, or, or like I knew, I know I learn a new way to use a word that I hadn't thought of before. I find that really cool. I'm a little bit of a nerd that way. Um, but going from writing scientific technical papers, like the kind that you would read on archive, the kind that are published in, you know, the Astrophysical Journal, which are for other academics and usually for other experts in your field. Uh, it's very different than the kind of writing, you know, you'd go to Universe Today mm -hmm. or EOS.org to read. Um, so which is more aimed at either uh, someone with general scientific knowledge or scientific interest or just the lay public who doesn't really know or care why science is cool. Um, and so it started out really difficult for me, I will say. Uh, I started as an expert exoplanet blogger. Right. Um, I will say I didn't always do the best job uh, in some of my earlier works, which you could probably still look up. Um, they're not the best. And then um, I was very lucky in that my PhD advisor, Dr. Jason Wright, uh, helped me connect with other science communication programs in my grad in at Penn State in grad school. Um, there are a number of sort of disparate classes in different departments, one of which was the Department of Geoscience uh, at Penn State or Earth, Earth and Space Science. Um, I forget the exact name, but they they have um, what a class that really helped me uh, sort of understand some of the, the technical differences in in what you need to look at when you're writing for different audiences uh, they gave me a lot so, of you know reference material and like the actual course structure and the background material i needed to understand some of the differences in the different types of science communication so so this journey that you've taken you're not the only person you're not alone i mean no. i realized early and tapped out um and went into science communication without the formal training 
uh, or my training is in computer science and engineering. And, and while you stuck through it and went all the way through. So I, there's just sort of two questions really. One is if, if a person is watching this, listening to this, and they're on that same kind of journey, what, what recommendation would you make to them if they, if, you know, if they're starting to feel a little burned out on the minutia of the science work, but they do feel like what got them into it is this love of the discovery and the fascination and explaining it to people. Is there a way that maybe they, they can learn from your mistakes and, and chase this stuff sooner? Or what would you recommend? So I re would recommend one, don't panic. It's not the end of the world. Uh, if you don't want to get a job in academia after going however many years in academia, it's n it, don't panic. It'll be okay. That's my first thing. Yeah. Um, the second thing I will say is, you know, really give it some thought, f uh, figure out what part of it you really enjoy. Um, I sort of cast a very wide net and tried every little thing possible. I drove myself a little bit crazy for a couple of years doing that, um, which maybe I could have avoided. But um, one of the things that I, that I did was I actively went out and I searched for other opportunities. While I was still continuing on my academic path, um, I did a, uh, a bunch of you know, volunteer and pro bono work in science communication. Uh, mm -hmm. I rarely got paid for any of that extra work. I can work. recall a, a show that uh, got you, had your help on yeah, a regular basis. That's true. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, Fraser, I never really thanked you for that, did I? No, aren't, I'm, aren't we supposed to thank you for doing the pro bono work for us? Yeah, but you know, it, it really helped me, you know, fine tune a lot of those skills. Yeah. So I'm, I'm still gonna say thanks for, you know, inviting me the first time and, you know, I giving me no, a second chance I after my no really idea first how appearance. it first started. Was it Morgan who? It was who, Morgan's yeah. fault, yeah. So Morgan and I, uh, who's also, for people watching, Morgan's also one of the panelists on Weekly Space Hangouts. Um, Morgan and I met when we were both actually writing for the same news website where I first started as an expert, as, as one of the exoplanet bloggers. Uh, and so Morgan reached out to me and said, hey, I've never met another grad student who's serious about commu science communication. We should talk. Yeah. And I was like, yes, I've never met anyone, anyone else either. I'm so glad I'm not alone. Uh, and that's the big thing is that you're not alone in thinking that maybe academia is not right for you and it's totally okay. Um, and you know, there are so many opportunities when you're at a university, uh, especially a university that's doing research, um, to explore the different aspects of the entire scientific endeavor. Because it's not just about what you do in the lab or at the uni or at an observatory or you know sitting in front of a computer screen. There's everything that happens afterwards. Like, you know, you you have to write the paper, you have to review the paper, you have to edit the paper, you have to publish the paper. If you're lucky enough, you get to promote the paper and uh, explain it to the media in a bunch of different ways. Uh, and all of those are part of the entire scientific endeavor. Sometimes you're lucky enough to be an advocate for science, uh, going even further and trying to get funding from a university or at the political level. And there's uh, an entire uh, array of careers in that direction too. Yeah. And the so best thing you can do, I think, is just you know reach out to some of the people uh, who have already done this uh, I will certainly welcome any emails that come my way about um, going into a career in journalism after academia or any sort of advice that I can give. Um, reach out to people because mm -hmm. most of the people that you reach out to will be very happy to help um, and very happy to save people some of the heartache that they experienced. I mean, I hope that in seeing the conversations that we have in, in on this channel and in other channels, the community is really welcoming and just wants you to succeed and, it's true. I and mean, all you have to do is reach out and and be willing to participate in the community and you will find a community that just wants to help you as much as it can to help get the word out about the work that you're doing if you're if you seriously want to do science communication the need is bottomless yeah and especially planet. anyone who is a science communicator at any level a hundred percent recognizes the need for more people from the scientific background who want to make that transition, who want to populate our ranks with um, knowledgeable science communicators and, you know, science advocates who are just, you know, trying to communicate the incredible experience of science to everyone else. Uh, we need lots of people. So yeah, yeah. pretty and much anyone so you ask will be like, yes, please do. Yeah. Come, come join us. Um, 
and you know there are so many great experience so many um like intro level experiences internships and workshops and you know six-week fellowship programs uh that you can participate in for little to no cost sometimes you know at the same time as a grad program or just after in like the transition or uh during a summer where you may not have research funding there are so many so many different programs where you can get more of that hands-on experience to try it out on a trial basis to see if it's really what you want. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And there are so many places now, right, that you can blog on Medium. You can blog on – you can record videos on YouTube. You can record a podcast. Like there's just – there's no reason why you can't create a body of work today in the field that you're studying, in a field that fascinates you, and just, and I am an example of a person who can just build this stuff up over time through osmosis as opposed to necessarily going to go to school for it. Like you can definitely, yeah. even if you don't wanna, you know, you've got some other career that you're in and there's something that, you fa that you're fascinated by, just help communicate, help get the word out. And I think yeah. there's a lot to that. Um, uh I will say one more thing that that was really helpful for me that I want to pass along this tip is that if you're still in grad school uh, and you are getting paid through your research funding or through a TA ship, a lot of the times that uh, your department will also cover uh, the cost of a class up to a certain number of credits per semester. And that's how I got a lot of my science communication courses and actual like accreditations was through these sort of already paid for semester credits. So I did an, uh, an internship in Penn State's Office of Public Information, which was super useful. Uh, I took courses in how people learn and how people communicate. I took actual science writing courses and all of this was already covered by uh, what I was already being paid to do. So if you have the option to do that, yeah, make the most out of the, the educational experience while you have it because everything after that will cost lots of money. <laughs> right. Um, and journalists don't get paid that much. Yeah, I mean, I know that there's things like Astrobytes and, you know, there's a lot of organized science communication efforts through academia as well that if you want to, you can participate in and, and be a part of. I know there's like AstroTweeps, they take over. AstroTweeps, yeah. Astro, yeah, AstroBytes. There's all sorts of shared, like other shared Twitter accounts that you can look into. Um, I'll, uh, I think Fraser and I, you and I were talking about uh, before the show about how oversubscribed university public information offices are. Yes. Uh, so yeah. Penn, yeah. Uh, so I went to Penn State, so a lot of my experience comes from that. Um, when I interned in that office for a semester, I learned that the entirety of Penn State, which is an R1 university, it's one of the largest research universities in the country, uh, they have four people writing all of their press releases. Right. Four all of the research that they do they're incredibly oversubscribed so if you just want to get some experience writing you know press release style uh pieces which can be useful for building up a writing portfolio right out of grad school you know say you know volunteer say hey i'm interested in writing would you mind if i wrote up some of this research for you and then you tweak it for your office add my byline yes yeah. yeah, yeah, they're. That's how I got some of my first stuff. And 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 this is the problem, right? It's some really interesting research comes along, and a lot of times it only makes it out into some very technical yeah. journal, or it goes to you know a prepress like Astro PH, and you don't. People just don't find out about this really important work. And I find I can take any research paper and I can figure out the nugget of news that is going to be useful to to explain to people that people are going to be like, oh, that's really cool that they figured this thing out. But a lot well, of times – to be fair, not every single paper has a, has a nugget of news, to be fair. I'd say but... almost, every, almost every paper, you know – the the Almost. ones all about the Monte Carlo simulations of the such and such atmosphere in the you know the Lyman Alpha forest, uh, etc. You can I think that you can if you you know you sit down and you grill the the researcher you can get to because because I mean a lot of times there's a reason why they've done this research they have a question they're trying to answer and yeah. then either they if they do answer that question or find some new little piece of nugget of information if you can tell the story right. I think you can absolutely explain why it's a fascinating discovery. It's just that whether or not these things reach, like when people see 
their newspaper and they see the same stories come up again and again and again, yeah. that's because someone at one of these at one of these universities, someone in the press office wrote the paper, wrote the the press release and sent it out and then it got picked up. And mm-hmm. there's tons and tons of stuff that never gets picked up. Exactly. That, that and I find I'm always you know, able to get as many stories as I want. I, you know, I don't want to discount the value of most of the research that's going on. Um, like you said, a lot of the stuff that we hear is this, is the large, big, groundbreaking, paradigm-changing, oh my gosh, we almost found alien life sort of things. Yeah. Um, alien megastructure, which, that kind of thing. Shh, shh. <laughs> We don't use the M word, do we? Well, we, no, we, we learned. I can tell. We I learned can tell last that story week. We yeah, I know. We learned last I, week just how close Jason was yeah. to the origin of that of that idea, and you in close orbit as well. So mm-hmm. I think uh, that's all right. We. I we can actually it. no. I I can tell that story. It actually it, it involves my first experience with um with large scale journalism, which is kind of interesting. Um, but anyway, to finish my other thought was, um, we hear a lot in the news about these sort of large groundbreaking discoveries, but that's not what the majority of science is. is. It's a lot of incremental small steps towards the answer to a bigger problem. And all of that research is super valuable. Um, It just usually takes something like a thousand words to explain it. And that's not the bandwidth that a lot of news outlets allow. Um, So if you have the room to do it, I say that, you know, you should teach about what the science what science is actually like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's not always every single paper changes the world. Uh, Jack Martinelli just posted, hey, Fraser, you're egocentric. If you think you alone can get to the kernel of truth, well, I can't believe you said that. Just to be clear that that there are press releases that come out that everybody reports on, but there are also tons of conferences where people are, are giving presentations. There are journals where people are posting uh, really interesting research stories. And there are a lot of uh, there's just so many interesting resources. And the problem is is that a lot of the a lot of the news agencies out there don't have the resources to be able to go and find these stories. And so I find I have the most fun digging up a story from say some presentation that somebody gave at a conference on. Uh, I don't know, spacecraft that are going to Mars. And it's really interesting ideas, some really groundbreaking ideas, but just because nobody wrote a press release to go along with the presentation that the researchers gave, uh, it just doesn't get any kind of press. And so I find yeah. that for a lot of these stories, I'm just like, like we're the only ones reporting on it because nobody else has has is tr- is looking through those same sources. So... Yeah. yeah, and I think a lot of I think one aspect of a scientific research paper that doesn't always get communicated is that it's still incredibly difficult to get one of these papers published. So it's not an automatic process where if you get money to do research and you do the research, it's not automatic that you get a paper out of it. Mm-hmm. That some journal will agree to publish the results or the non-results of your project. There is uh, an many many rounds of gatekeeping that happen between the intent to publish and the actual paper that people see Uh, and so to get through all of those gates there has to be some sort of central idea some some central nugget of information that's important enough for that journal to publish about and i think fraser that might be what you were getting at before is that every paper has a central focus a a reason why it Mm -hmm. was published yeah and that reason was obviously interested interesting enough for a panel of uh, scientific peers to say, yeah, that's interesting enough. Other people should know about it too. Yeah. And, and just because the public, you know, the press officer didn't happen to have the time on their yeah. schedule, they were working on some other piece of work and they didn't have to get a, get a chance to, to present this. And, and then on the, on the flip side, if they do have a lot of time, then they are able to dig in and talk to one of the researchers at the university and say, oh, are you working on anything interesting? And the scientists will go, oh, well, we just figured this out. And the, and the press officer will be like, that sounds great. I'll write a that paper. That sounds you know, awesome. I want to write about it. That sounds great. I'll write about it. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes if it's more complicated and technical, they are more hesitant because they can mess it up. Mm-hmm. And often do. And part, <laughs> right? of, part of that is also on the scientists to be able to explain to a press officer who likely doesn't have the same scientific background that they do and the same sci- uh, wealth of scientific context that a researcher will have. 
um, it's on the the scientist a bit to be able to synthesize their work into something that is a message that is valuable to other people. Yeah. Uh, and that's one of the things I, I feel is getting better in in today's uh, academia. It's not great yet. There are still uh, few and far between are the researchers who are great at communicating what their why their science is necessary and valuable to a non-expert or to the public. And right. I think it's getting better. Yeah. I wish it were getting better faster. All right. I got a great question here that comes awesome. from Cody's lab. Um, I want to publish some papers. How would I go about doing that? I got kicked out of school before getting a bachelor's degree. So one of the, one of the things that you could do uh, is find a scientist who's willing to partner with you on writing a paper. On a lot of academic journals, um, you need to have a, uh, a PhD researcher as a co-author on your, on your paper in order to get into a lot of the journals that are more widely seen. Um, this is, it's the same reason why a grad student like myself, like I was, uh, before I got my PhD, I never published a paper on my own because I didn't have the credentials as a scientist to publish in a scientific journal. But I have certainly seen a number of papers, really excellent papers that I've covered as, as a journalist that were, uh, first authored by an amateur astronomer, uh, who partnered with a professional astronomer that had a similar interest. So my recommendation to you is to, you know, do some Google searching, find out who in the scientific community is working on a similar project, or maybe even just has a hobby or an like a side interest in the yeah. type of work that you're doing and reach out to them and say, Hey, I've been doing this work. I've, uh, here is a draft of a manuscript of this research that I'm doing. Is this something you're interested in? Can you help me? There was I think a that's really an excellent way to get uh, really interesting video that came out from The Verge, I think, this week or last week. Did you see it about this? Uh, I didn't. About no. searching for micrometeorites. So there's this is this is the exact situation. There is a uh, an amateur, an enthusiast who has categorized thousands of 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 micrometeorites, and for a long time there was skepticism that these were actually meteorites, but mm -hmm. he's been able to figure out exactly what. Um, pollution looks like and what metal fragments from from welding looks like and is left with these pieces that have been analyzed and demonstrated to actually be uh, micrometeorites from space and has sort of become a, a world expert in this thing and worked partnered with scientists done a lot of the heavy lifting to look through the the uh, you know the the individual little micrometeorites and help figure out how to tell which is which and be able to partner on those on those papers i mean i think the the challenge is is to not be a crank right yeah so that so that is one thing that you do have to be aware of is that sometimes astronomers particularly in fields that are flush with a lot of amateur astronomers doing similar things or who are in sort of an esoteric uh, field of astronomy get a lot of emails from crackpots who don't know what they're doing. Yeah, I still I still get those, and I haven't been in academia for a year and a half. Yeah, um, and so and, I, I mean, I mean approach it, it in a professional aspect, like you would approach any professional colleague. Yeah, yeah, and, and I show, think the problem and show that is you know is what that you're doing. That, exactly, that there there mm -hmm. are now a lot of places that people can go and publish their work. There are there are journals, but they're more vanity journals like they're they're not they're and or they're predatory or they're pre and they're and absolutely yeah there are predatory journals that are willing to publish your work in exchange for money and it's really hard to be able to to route around them and mm -hmm. so i think but that's a i mean that if you are serious and you know what you're doing and your work is good it that's a tough connection to to make to a scientist because i'm sure a mm -hmm. lot of them are are very are very nervous and are very ha, have a lot of inquiries and these things don't pan out. Yeah, and depending on what exactly the research is that you're doing, there may actually be a support network already in place for something like this. Um, there are organizations of uh, citizen scientists or amateur astronomers uh, who all share, you know, a similar research goal. Uh, one that comes to mind is AAVSO, which is uh, what is it? Amateur astronomer variable 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 star observers. Yeah, something like that. Uh, I may have messed up that acronym, but AAVSO um, is 
just for citizen scientists, but they all you know, have the same goal and they partner, they already have established partnerships with uh, certain research organizations and certain variable star scientists uh, to get a lot of that science published. So there may already be some support structure in place for what you're looking to do. Uh, and you may just have to find it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, someone asks, you know, when can you ask questions as you saw with Cody's lab, go ahead. I'll ask all the questions. Ask all the questions. Um, so Steve Marson asks, uh, when James Webb launches, what exoplanet would you like to see it focus on first and why? Oy. Oh, okay. So first off, when James Webb publishes. When it launches. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah. that's uh, Not if. very optimistic of you, but yeah. Um, <laughs> So give okay when it public when it launches. Given the exoplanets we know today, which won't be the same exoplanets we'll know when it launches, um, I still want it to focus um, on some of the Kepler systems, which some of the, you'd have to go with some of the brighter Kepler systems. But there's one that uh, in particular I uh, studied in a lot of detail that I think is completely fascinating. Uh, and that's Kepler-296, which is a system that has two low-mass stars and five planets, three of which are in the habitable zone. Wow. Which I think is a fascinating system. I mean, uh, Kepler, you know, discovered so many exoplanets. Um, and not some of them are very like other exoplanets. Not, not everyone is unique and not every system is unique. But I think the systems that have multiple stars and multiple planets many of which are in the habitable zone or approximately Earth-sized, the dynamics of those systems just boggle the mind sometimes. I think it's it's so different than what we are used to seeing here in the solar system that you start wondering, you know, how did that system come to be? Are those plan Can those planets really be habitable? Like, what are the conditions mm -hmm. there? Um, and it, uh, if you any of you watched Weekly Space Hangout a couple weeks ago, uh, maybe two weeks ago, we spoke with Natalie Hinkle and she spoke a lot about the difference between what we define as the habitable zone and what is actually hospitable towards life. And those are very different concepts. Um, and uh, systems that have multiple stars and planets that are maybe in the habitable zone challenge many of those assumptions. So I'd like to take a closer look at some of those. Uh, not to say I wouldn't also love to look at TRAPPIST because there's who knows the, what the heck's going on with those planets anymore, whether they have atmospheres or water or ice or I don't even know anymore. Yeah. Um, not to say I wouldn't love those two, but I, I would love to see some of those uh, more original Kepler systems looked at a lot more closely. One of the jokes that I see unfolding on Twitter is people noticing that that such and such planet observation would be an ideal candidate for James Webb. I saw that. Right. Uh, was it Natalie Batala posted? That's about right. That on yeah, Twitter. that's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and Natalie Batala was uh, one of the. She was the project scientist on Kepler. She's one of the principal scientists on TESS, and she's an exoplanet expert of the highest caliber. Um, and what she, one of the what she posted was, you know, you can't claim that your that your favorite exoplanet is an excellent target for James Webb Space Telescope unless you've actually modeled it through. The James Webb simulators to see if James Webb could actually look at it. And I think that's a totally fair point. Uh, having read a lot of exoplanet papers, everyone is so uh, eager to say, you know, this this planet would be great for James Webb. And a lot of planets would be great for James yeah. Webb. It's true. James Webb can look at a lot of planets. Uh, a, a, sorry, a wide parameter space of planets, one at a time. Um, not every planet is going to be super interesting for James Webb to look at. And given that exoplanets is really only about 30% of what James Webb will be looking at, there's only so many that it can do. Well, what is the sweet spot? Like, what is the ideal kind of planet that James Webb is going to be able to take a look at? James Webb, uh, as far as exoplanets go, James Webb is designed for uh, Earth-sized, temperate planets around low-mass stars. It is James Webb... Uh, has a lot of instruments that look in the infrared, which means that it won't be able to look at a lot of hot planets, uh, which will be more in the visible or ultraviolet, or or if or planets that are around sun-like stars or hotter. Uh, James Webb really isn't uh, optimized for those kinds of stars. But if you're looking at uh, stars that are 
you know, slightly colder or uh, much colder than the sun who have planets that are, you know, in those habitable zones. So temperate, uh, water-rich conditions. Those are the types of planets that James Webb is really going to help with. Uh, and if you're, you know, a little bit further out from the star and you have transits that, you know, happen semi-frequently, not, you know, every three days, but, but maybe, you know, every couple weeks, maybe it'll be able to get some really great atmospheric measurements of those planets. And that's what I'm looking forward to. Right. But like, I think a lot of people are imagining James Webb goes up and it turns on some Earth-sized world orbiting a sun-like star and reveals... Be like, whoa, cool aliens. Yeah, yeah, reveals yeah, no. aliens, yeah. <laughs> That's not what it's going to do. Yeah. That's not the right telescope for that. Um, and keep in mind, like, James Webb, uh, it's not a wide net. That's not the... This isn't the one that's going to discover planets. Uh, this is the one that's going to do a laser focus on one planet at a time or one planetary system at a time. If you want the wide net that's going to discover planets, that's going to be TESS, that may be LSST, that's going to be Cheops, mm -hmm. that's going to be Plato. Those are your big wide net planet discoverers to, you know, sweep in a thousand planets at a time like Kepler did. Right. Uh, James Webb's going to be your laser focus. But the, but that'll be the the frustration is that you'll have you'll yeah. know of all these planets you'll know their orbit their mass mm -hmm. their yeah that's it and yeah, then that... and you know then you'll know kind of it's in the habitable zone. I mean, with zone. James Webb, you may also actually get uh, information on the atmospheres. So if a planet is transiting, uh, and you can see it transit, and it has an atmosphere, it means that atmosphere is transiting also. So James Webb will be able to do. Uh, to apply a method that's called transmission spectroscopy, which is essentially looking, taking a spectrum of the light from a star when there's no planet in front of it, taking another spectrum of the same star when the planet is in front of it, and then subtracting the second thing from the first thing to get a spectrum of just the planet's atmosphere to see what the star's light looks like when it's filtered through that atmosphere, when the atmosphere imprints that chemical signature on the star's light. That's going to be one of the that's where, that's where James Webb's going to be a powerhouse, because right now we have managed to do that for maybe six planets in any great detail, six maybe ten at this point, yeah. um, and that's after you know hundreds and hundreds of hours of observing time using Hubble, which is the best instrument we have up there right now to do that, or Spitzer. Yeah, uh, you're talking hundreds of observing hours. That's incredibly expensive in in space telescope time. But James Webb is designed to do that. Like right now, we're pushing instruments that were never ever designed to do exoplanets because we didn't even know exoplanets existed when these right. things were designed and built and launched. So we're taking Hubble, we're taking Spitzer, and we're twisting them to do exoplanet science when you know they were meant to look at galaxies. So with with James, I mean, is there like, you know, I'm imagining like, say you do have like a star like the sun with mm -hmm. a Earth-like planet that's passing in front. Is that the wrong wavelengths, though? Because I know James Webb is is more about the infrared. So will you or is your perfect environment going to be a cooler star like, say, a red dwarf star with a planet that's reasonably similar temperature passing in front of it and the, the temperatures are more into the infrared i mean your perfect star is going to be that cooler star that red that k that or that m star that the red dwarf that is going to be the perfect star for james webb um not saying that it won't be able to look at you know a sun-like star at a slightly hotter temperature uh with a planet in its habitable zone uh but those planets are much more rare. We don't know of a lot of them because planets in uh, habitable zone planets around a sun-like star, you know, they take a year to orbit. You need three years of observation to confirm that planet exists. Um, and the fraction of those planets that transit is much smaller than the fraction of planets that would transit a smaller star. And that's just a, a, a function of geometry. So uh, Rami Imad is asking, uh, with the ground-based telescopes, will, will they be able to do that more efficiently using adaptive optics? So do you think that, you know, when you look at the budgets, right, budget for things like, say, the ELT, the Extremely Large Telescope, 39 meters, is 
oh, merely about one and a half billion dollars. Yeah, compared, compared you know, to James Webb, we which is James at what nineteen billion? No, right no, now? We're, it's merely eight point six. Oh, sorry. Yeah, excuse yeah, me. Yeah, that was so, ten billion off. I'm thinking about right. the end budget. And so, for like the price of James, you know, you could have gotten say the overwhelmingly large telescope. You've got hundred meter telescope. Yes, the um, lunar baseline array telescope. Right, right. Um, um, so, do you, do you think that? that they've flipped the tools have flipped now and these ground like obviously with james webb you can't get that you use certain wavelengths you just can't get from the earth that's but... true you, there's a lot of infrared wavelengths you can't get from the earth there's a lot of ultraviolet ones you can't get from the earth that's because our atmosphere gets in the way uh and i know I, i've been talking a lot about all the space telescopes that are going to be focused on exoplanets because i did a lot of space telescope research myself but ground-based telescopes man those are such incredibly valuable tools that often get overlooked in uh, when we talk about the future of exoplanet science. We talk about James Webb, James Webb, James Webb, oh my gosh. But ground-based telescopes are really the workhorses that have just been doing continuous, steady work on discovering planets, characterizing them, getting more, uh, pr more precise, and just a larger volume of continuous data coverage for more than two decades. Um, Ground-based telescopes will never be obsolete when it comes to exoplanets. They'll never not be valuable. Uh, I mean, even so, uh, you know, take a look at whatever whatever uh, Astro PH published today. There's going to be some exoplanet paper that uses 20 years of radial velocity data from the HARPS radial velocity spectrograph to get a precise measurement of the mass of this planet. That's 20 years of continuous observations on one planet. That, that's the type of thing that ground-based observing can do. I mean, it can do a lot more, uh, especially now with uh, some of the newer technologies with, with adaptive optics, with better multi-object spectrographs, with, more, with higher resolution spectrographs, with um, better coronagraphs from the ground, with things like ALMA, which can't, which isn't, you know, it does infrared, it does uh, millimeter, submillimeter measurements, and it can measure the the fine, tiny little gaps in a protoplanetary disk, which are the, essentially like the, the baby pictures of exoplanets. We can't do that from space. We can do that from the ground. Um, so I will say it, it'll, it'll never not be valuable to have ground-based observing, and we do need to continue to push the boundaries on those technologies too. Uh, Eric one asks, aren't red dwarf stars rather volatile for habitable planets? This is the, this is the sad this reality the sad that news. we're starting yeah. to, the, to find the out more about. The answer is about 50-50. Some, uh, about half of them, yes. Uh, the issue with red dwarfs is that they're there, they're born, and then they live for like a hundred billion years, and they don't ever really change all that much. They, they look a bit different in the, maybe their first, you know hundred million years then they're pretty steady and at some point they start to slow down in their life and so we don't ever really know how old an m dwarf star is we do know that about 50 percent of them or so are incredibly active they have very large flares mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of those flares also come equipped with uh, extreme ultraviolet radiation uh, and just like bursts of ultraviolet activity that can strip a planet of its atmosphere its water and sterilize it of all life and that is compounded by the fact that the habitable zone of an, a red dwarf star is so close into the star itself because that's <laughs> yeah. where, you know, the temperatures are right for liquid water on the surface. That's also where the flares tend to hit. So about, you know, 50% of the M dwarf uh, plant habitable zone planets that you hear of probably nominally are in the habitable zone, but maybe they're actually not hospitable towards life. Um, and that's one of the things that we need to do a better job of characterizing is that we didn't know when we started hunting for exoplanets that M dwarfs and K dwarfs would be, you know, prime real estate for planets. We thought these stars are way too small. They don't have enough, they don't have a lot of mass themselves. themselves. Some of them are barely bigger than Jupiter. Uh, they can't possibly have enough mass to, to support a planetary system. We found out that was wrong. So we just didn't know. And so we don't actually have and a lot of measurements of the radiation environments and the flaring and the activity levels of many of the M dwarfs that we know host planets. So that's something we're going to have to keep doing. 
Uh, and it's certainly before we claim that any red dwarf star is uh, has a hospitable environment for life. We do need to make those measurements. And that and that's going to shift into this idea of of starting to figure out some proper, say, biosignatures, things that will yeah. be uh, the smoking gun. And, and you, you know, you were the person who really brought my mind around to this idea that, in fact, finding a biosignature is going to be a lot tougher than we had been hoping. Yeah, when we we hope, we always hope, you know, that if we look at the, if we take a spectrum of a planet, that we'll see an obvious marker for something like, say, chlorophyll that, you know, is found in plants or some type of oxygen or ozone that we know can only be produced through a biogenic process and can't be produced, you know, say from volcanic outgassing or some something that must come from life. But the reality is, is that most compounds that we know of in the universe can come from, uh, if they can come from life, there is also a completely non-biogenic way to get the same compound. And so being able to figure out what a planet's natural levels of that particular signature, uh, chemical signature is, and then figuring out if you exceed or are depleted in that resource that may hint at some sort of other process going on, some non, uh, I, would, I don't wanna say non-natural, but some maybe biogenic or artificial way to get the, the measurement you're looking at, that's going to be a lot harder to figure out. But that's something we might be able to do if we study other planets in the same system or the stars themselves. Well, do you think that this is something that, that they're going to crack now? Like there are people working on this and they're proposing different biosignatures. And when you match that up with the like the capabilities of the instruments that we have available and sort of cross-reference and go, could we look for oxygen? Could we look for ozone? Could we look for photosynthesis like at some point do you feel like someone's going to go aha i've got it we just look for this and if we see it then we know there's life there i have the hope that we'll get there one day um i always have in the back of my mind um is that when we say that we're searching for life we're searching for life as we know it mm -hmm. we we have to put some sort of boundary on it or we won't be able to identify what that life is or if it actually is life. So if we're looking for life as we know it, I have the hope that eventually we'll get there. If we can nail down all those other points, you know, what a planet would look like without life, what the star looks like, what the other chemical properties of this system are, what its atmosphere should look like. If we can nail down all those other points, I feel like we will eventually be able to pinpoint uh, you know, a smoking gun for an individual planet. I don't know that that smoking gun will be the same gun for every single planet that we look at. Yeah, uh, I mean, and then there's always that little niggling thing in the back of my mind, like, oh, we're searching for only life as we know it. Yeah. So maybe there is life, and we and it is there, and we just don't know how to recognize it. Uh, there's uh, there's some interesting research that's actually being done by NASA right now. Um, actually, I have one of the papers up here right now at the Laboratory for Agnostic Biosignatures. And I don't know if you saw this. And th I don't this, think I have. Yet. Yeah, the gist is exactly that, which is what would life as we don't know it possibly yeah. look like? And so they're examining and, yeah. every kind of molecule that could serve as a baseline for life, every kind of solvent that could could serve as a way for life to mix its chemicals up and, and other, you know, different kinds of energy that they could rely on. And so mm -hmm. you could imagine... And then each one of those then generates all kinds of interesting potential biosignatures, each of which of those could be. It could have a different, uh, a million right. different permutations of how it actually looks like when we're this far away. Yeah. Um, one of the things we didn't mention is uh, non-biotic or, you know, technosignatures, which is something that is gaining more and more ground recently. Yes. And I know I nixed the M word, but you did yeah, talk yeah, to Jason yeah. Wright last week. Yeah, yeah, we uh, talked Who about... leads a lot of the, the techno-signature efforts. Uh, and that's an, another way, you know, some something that stands out as a clearly non-natural physical signal. Yeah. Um... Whether it's chemical or technological, something. Now, I, well, I mean, this was the joke that Jason made last week, which was like... NASA's, or, you know, scientists are all about searching for dumb life. Why don't we search for smart life too? What's so wrong with searching for smart life? 
So uh, I there's think there's nothing wrong with searching for smart life. But uh, there are some real unambiguous signs when you are searching for techno signatures, for example, like seeing a radio transmission in a certain spectrum tells you with there is no natural process that we can imagine that will generate radio emissions at a certain megahertz yeah, there are radio gaps yeah where and, where we know that there's no natural process that produces a signal in this particular you know band of radio sign signals so that's a great place for alien life to transmit so we know that it's a not natural signal yeah stuff yeah. like that um there's nothing wrong with searching for intelligent life i think a well, I, for two reasons, I think that that, met, that that approach is often looked down upon by other scientists. I do not look down upon that approach. I've done some of that research myself, um, and I admire Jason and all of his work. Um, well, one, I think it gets a really bad rap in popular science and, you know, in movies. And, you know, the, the guys and gals looking for aliens are always the one with the crazy hair that everyone thinks is like the crackpot looking at the end of the world and uh, being abducted <laughs> like it's portrayed really poorly in you know the right. general public um but at the same time in a more serious sense uh here on earth we know that the for the majority of time that there was life on earth that life was not capable of communicating with the outside like we only we've only gained interplanetary communication capabilities in the last century but life has existed on this planet you know, going back billions of years. So in terms of the percentage of time that there has been life on this planet versus the percentage of time where that life has been able to talk to things outside of the planet. Um, if you're going to look for life, the, you know, the roll of the dice says you're probably not going to find it in the right stage that it's where it can communicate with you. Uh, Science Side asks, what do you think about life on, on Europa? And sort of generalize this, yeah. like this idea of these icy worlds as a, as a place for life. Let's do it. Yeah, I 100% think that we're going to... Okay. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't say that as 100%. I have very great confidence that we're going to eventually find some sort of microbial or bacterial life in the subsurface oceans. 100%. Of at, of I'm, just at gonna, least, I'm just going to tweet yeah, this out yeah, right now. Write that down. I'm on yeah, record for yeah, that. All right. uh, <laughs> maybe not exactly on Europa, but there are, you know, half a dozen other moon, icy moons in this solar system we know have subsurface oceans. There's Europa, there's Callisto, there's Ganymede, there's Titan, there's Enceladus, there's Triton. Yeah. There's maybe Pluto. Maybe Pluto. Nope. Yeah. Maybe Pluto. Um, I think that subsurface ocean life is incredibly likely somewhere in this solar system. Let's go find it. Yeah. Let's do it. Totally yep. on board. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing how, how much the evidence is just building with the discovery of, of hydrogen gas pouring out of these worlds yeah. that, that we're finding more and more of these places that seem to have some kind of subsurface ocean, it feels like it's a thing we need to do yesterday. And in fact, somebody asked let's earlier. Let's do it yesterday. Um, yeah, let's do it yesterday. Someone asked, and I apologize. I remembered I was going to fire this one to you was, was what do you think about going back and studying the moons of Jupiter and the moons of, of Saturn? Let's How high in the priority list would you, would you put that when you think um, about the missions? So I would put that below a mission to Uranus and Neptune, below a mission to Venus, but not much further down the list than that that's funny so so someone asked me this question and i um, on the question show last week someone asked for my my top three and i'm like well europa but since we're already going to europa I'm yeah gonna we're say, already going there yeah, and i'm gonna in count fact, that the, one out and in fact nasa's budget that just got approved what yesterday or yeah. something um include like earmarks funds for europa clipper and for a lander that they haven't even approved of yet they say you'll have this money but you got to do a lander on europa yeah that's Even though so you don't great. have one planned yet. Yeah, because that was originally in the works, and then mm -hmm. it was thrown out, and now and now it's and potentially. Like, nope, back. you gotta have this. Uh, you uh, want this money? You're gonna you're gonna land on Europa. I that's already up there. I think I can get you to disagree with yourself, though. Titan, wouldn't you like to see uh, something explore the atmosphere and maybe the seas of Titan? I do. Yeah, Titan, Uranus, Neptune, Venus. That did, I didn't put them in that order, though. No, 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 that's fine. Yeah, I yeah. said Uranus, Neptune, Venus. Yeah, and then not much further down yeah. the other icy, the other icy moons. moons. Yeah, I yeah. I haven't given much thought to which icy moon I would like to see or or Titan, given that it's not I no it's not really icy. 
yeah. I don't I haven't given much thought to above or below the top three. Um, but somewhere in that mishmash of top ten are the are Titan and all of the icy moons. Uh, Jeremy Jeremy Broham asks, uh, since you're confident with life elsewhere in the solar system, then wouldn't you think there would be evidence of life on Mars? Probably. I think there probably is. And I would think that we'd probably find it in the next 10 years or so. Whoa. Uh, Again, I, we just like write this but, down. I'm sorry. Right, no, right no. down my predictions. No, I, I will say this because I know that there are a number of missions that are going to launch in the next two to three years whose sole mission is to look in these places on mars that we know have the right conditions for life and have the right chemical uh food and the energy source and the water places that we've marked as highly likely if like if there's ever going to be a place on mars that has life this is the place that's going to have it uh, we're sending we're sending you know a bunch of missions already there i think it's highly like likely we're going to find it very soon so which so then it's a race. Do you think that we're going to find evidence of life here in the solar system first, or we're going to find evidence of life using one of our telescopes around some other planetary system? You're not going to get me to make a firm prediction on this one. You already predicted say, life on Europa. Come on, I need you to make a stand. I didn't put a timeline on that, that one. True. Though. Um, you know, I think, I think, given that we're actually going to set robot wheels on place, a lot of places in this solar system where we're pretty sure the conditions are right for life. And we don't yet know how to narrow down an unambiguous biosignature around a distant exoplanet. And we don't yet have the instruments in place to actually measure them. I'm tentatively going to say in the solar system versus outside the solar wow. system. I I we should have a bet then because I am on the exact opposite uh, okay. side of that. From I will you. I will bet you something incredibly minor. Yes, of course, of <laughs> course. Yeah. Next time we meet, dinner's on like the said, uh, not, on the you know yeah. on the on the loser. Yes, exactly right. I will buy you dinner if I'm wrong. Perfect. If you know we find yeah. life around Trappist G or uh, Alpha Sen B or whatever Proxima B before we find it, and you know in the seas of Europa. Yeah, and then and then I'll when, owe you a steak th dinner. Then everybody wins, right? Because yeah. you know, I on mean, the one hand really, you, you had to buy really a dinner. Matter. If we find life yeah. outside of the earth and we know that we didn't accidentally drop it there. Yeah. But, are you really good? Are you really going to parse it like, "Oh, that one doesn't count. Yeah, exactly. It's around that exoplanet and not in the place that I wanted it to be. I'm not good. I'm not happy about this." But we do <laughs> agree really that, that that they come before some kind of techno signature. I'm not saying that either. I I can't say that if I want to keep my friendship with Jason. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I I don't know. I mean I mean I think that you know Jason probably also sees it as a bit of a long shot, but it's sort of like why it's, not? It's since possibly you can. a long shot, but it's certainly still worth looking for, and it's a totally uh, different avenue of investigation that's not dependent on the results of the other ones. I mean. We're looking. You're looking at an, in a complete, uh, a completely different type of investigation, uh, yeah. and if you put all of your efforts, you know, in the biosignature direction and your remote observation of distant exoplanet, if you put all of your efforts in there, and the signature comes from, you know, the perpendicular axis of aliens, yeah, you're gonna miss it. You gotta, you gotta look in in all directions. Well, so we're just like a minute away from the end of our hour. I don't want to take up any more of your time, but I want to make sure that people can continue this journey to follow more of the work that you're doing. What are the best ways to uh, to follow what you're doing? So you always should follow me on Twitter. Everyone who's watching right now should follow me. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Astro Kim Cartier, uh, and I always tweet about all the work that I'm doing, all the articles that I publish. Uh, and all the efforts that I'm involved in with science communication. So if you want to know what I'm doing in an up-to-date, uh, in-the-moment type, type of way, follow me on Twitter. Uh, you can also follow my work on eos.org. That's eos.org, which is the Earth and Space Science magazine that I write for. Um, eventually, I will start updating my website again. <laughs> so don't, don't promise anything. I can't promise yeah. that. So, so uh, 
stick with those two ways and you'll always find out what I'm doing. And of and course, of course every watch week. the weekly space hang out every Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern, which is 5 p.m. Yeah. For Fraser time. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, every Wednesday night. Yeah. And uh, cool. Well, so next week is going to be Morgan, uh, which is my, which is the other co-host, and we'll be talking about planetary science. So I hope uh, everyone will will enjoy that as well. Yeah. Uh, if you weren't satisfied with my answers about solar system science, ask them to Morgan next yeah. week. Yeah. Um, if you want, tell them you know this is what Kim said. We're going to find life on well, Mars in ten years, and then he'll you know shut me down That's we'll, okay. we'll find out where he which side of that bet he'll take i'll i'll, yes. I'll make sure if someone remind me to uh to fire that past him and see what he thinks well kimberly again thank you so much for taking the time to chat today it was a lot of fun it was great to have this the one-on-one -on -one conversation because always it's such a madhouse with all of the stories yeah that there's we're always so much space news great. to talk about every yeah. single week it's great to you know delve more in depth on all of this and to give some of my own personal yeah. opinions on a lot of this science uh is great talking about my experiences uh both in and out of academia and how to make that in transition and again if anyone has any questions about that or concerns please do reach out to me yeah. i always love hearing from people uh, and helping out where I can. Yeah. So I'm really glad we got to talk about that too. To yeah. make that to make that journey into science communication, you look like you're having just a really great time. I'm with having it. a blast. Yeah. It's been, it's been a great. great time and I hope that I don't stop anytime soon. All right. Well thanks everybody. Thanks to the moderators. Thanks to all the viewers who are watching this week. Thanks to the people who uh, provided a donation. That's amazing. Um and uh, we'll see you We've got an episode on uh, Farewell to Opportunity that's going to come out in a couple of days. We've got a question show. Dr. Becky is going to be giving the guest answer this week. Uh, and then, of course, um, next week in the Weekly Space Hangout on Wednesday. And, of course, we've got uh, Morgan uh, this time next week. So uh, we'll see everyone later. Thanks, everyone. Night.